Welcome to the Influential Nonprofit, the show for nonprofit leaders to grow their influence so they can grow their income and impact. Now, here's your host, Marianne Dersch. Okay, so welcome to another episode of the Influential Nonprofit. This is Mary Ann Dersh, your host. I work with nonprofit leaders to master the art of influence so they can raise more money without feeling rejected or pushy. And today I'm with my friend, Corey Kupfer. And Corey is not a nonprofit. He is an entrepreneur and you're kind of like, you're kind of a badass. So you are a deal maker, 100%. That is to your core. Like, I'm just going to say deal-driven growth strategist, negotiator, deal-maker, speaker, and attorney. And you have the Deal Quest, your founder of Deal Quest, and the weekly Deal Quest podcast, and author of Authentic Negotiating. So it's all about making the deal with you. And I know you work in a very authentic and aligned way because we wound up in the same business retreat. Now, Michelle Villalobos is my business coach and you're okay Mm -hmm. to, I know the business breakthrough retreat, which I help her coach that. And I also participate for me. But the reason that you're here today is because you told an amazing story at this retreat. And, you know, so much of the work of the nonprofit and fundraising and so much of the mindset of fundraising, like it's a burden. People feel weird asking. There's a lot of guilt involved. There's you know, there's money, the vulnerability of asking, the possibility of rejection. And that's a kind of a trifecta that makes like every trigger come up. And so people are very reluctant. And so when we were in this retreat and you told this story, so first just give us a little background of kind of like who you were at the time of this story. Sure. Yeah. So I grew up as a lower middle-class kid in Brooklyn, you know, uh, we were never poor. There was always food on the table, but my parents lived to paycheck. You know, I remember my dad used to divide up his paycheck into little cash and envelopes, you know, for rent and electric and, right. you know, food. Yes. So that's, you know, that's, that's my background. So my parents were, you know, great and kind people, but I had no background of giving to charity or, you know, putting money in causes. We didn't have that excess money, right? So by this time, by the time the story that you want me to tell us started, I'm in my, you know, 30s. I've established my own law firm, but, you know, I'm just, you know, at the point where I'm starting to, you know, make some good money. I had taken, you know, I had started out a big law firm making good money and then I started my own firm and there was time to build that up. And, you know, I had student loans, I was paying back all that kind of stuff. So I was doing okay, but it's not like I had a lot of excess money. And also just mentality wise, I had, you know, maybe I'd written a $75 check to some something because somebody asked me to support their cancer run or, you know, whatever it was. But that was about it. You know, I didn't really, I wasn't doing any significant, anywhere near any significant charitable giving. Right. And, you know, in the background, your background was like those envelopes. I mean, you're just trying to make it. Yeah. Right. And and then that, that focus of they provided and they gave everything to provide for you. And then that you received that were grateful, but then you also like became a lawyer. So obviously, you know, you got yourself through law school, your parents did somehow you achieved to where you could, you know, get through all that. Yeah, no question. And, and listen, they, you know, my folks paid for my college. We took out loans for, you know, for law school. And listen, frankly, at that time, law school didn't cost what it, what yeah. it does now. Education didn't cost what it does now. For sure. But it was yeah. still, you know, it was still a chunk of money. And uh, yeah, no, I was definitely in a different position than my parents were growing up when I became a lawyer. But just sort of more mentality wise, it just wasn't really on my radar. 
to you know right I mean, like I didn't come from that space where right where you engage to charity right yeah. where you were raised like giving money regularly or giving and I mean I was a little bit I don't know I was thinking about that real quick like my parents went to church and we gave to church but other than that that really wasn't a lot so tell me then what happened to switch that for you yeah so I was in somewhere in my mid-30s I had it was a few years into my own law practice I had worked at big New York City firms for about six years and then I opened my own firm with no clients so you know it was a time where I was building up I was I was in credit card debt just getting it started whatever and then I got to the point where I was doing okay and but I also got to that point maybe you know that some people get to more in their fifth these, like they call it a midlife crisis, where I sort of saw that the business success was coming, but I was in my mid thirties and, and asked myself, well, is that it? Right? Like what else is life about? Like, okay. So I see the train, I'm working hard. I'm getting to the point where I, I know I'll be able to make a living and then do even better and more, but like, what is, what else right. is there? What is the me, point right? of that? Right. What's mm-hmm. the point of that? Exactly. Was, there's gotta be something more. There's gotta be something bigger in life. And, and I wanted to make an impact and contribute in some way. So I got active in an organization called The Hunger Project, which is an organization that helps works with people to empower them to end their own hunger. So it doesn't feed anybody. It doesn't do food drops and that kind of stuff. And it works, you know, at that time, mainly internationally. It's been some years, I'm much less involved now, but for a good stretch, you know, I got actively involved in the New York chapter of The Hunger Project. And, and uh, very early on, I got exposed to, at the very start of my involvement, Lynn Twist was the head of strategic funding for The Hunger Project, which is basically the fundraiser. That's what they called it. Uh, and this is way before Lynn went on to write the Soul of Money book. And which and- let's just pause. One of my favorite books, and everyone who's listening, Lynn Twist, The Soul of Money, that it's a game changer. Like it completely changed how my relationship to money. It's not a book about fundraising, it's a book about your relationship to money. She's a fundraiser. So she a lot of her experiences and the lessons that she teaches came through fundraising. Right. So for those of us who are fundraisers, it's like doubly powerful. So yes, yeah, so you got to get solicited by Lynn Twist. <laughs> so, you know, so I met Lynn and, and, I, and again, it was before the book, it was before, you know, her horses and whatever. And I remember there was, a, she did a, an interview with a NPR, you know, public radio station. And this is going to date myself, this is back in the days of cassette tapes. And we recorded it off the radio and like people would copy that tape and hand it around to folks because it was the early discussions of her concepts of solo money. And, you know, it was the first time that I really looked at my relationship to money and, you know, and how important it was. And some of the fundamental concepts that I got from Lynn from that work, which really opened me up to where the story is really going to go in terms of giving, was that, you know, she talked about how, you know, money is like spiritual energy or it's like, and it's like water, right? That, you know, if water is stagnant, it, it festers and it becomes diseased right? It's got to flow, right? So money should flow, right? Like water, money is spiritual energy, it flows through you. And then she also posed this question about what would be possible if you put more of your money where, where your highest ideals were, and if you put it in your budget first. And that was like, that blew me away, right? Because I had sort of gotten activated, like, you know, what what is life about? I want to make a difference in certain things or whatever. But me, like many people, again, I wasn't brought up to, you know, in, in a charity mindset, but even what I understood about it was, oh yeah, you know, I'll pay all my expenses and I have some money left over and maybe I can give some of that, you know, to charity. She challenged us to put it in our budget first, to look at our bank accounts, to look at our credit card statements. And, you know, the challenge was to say, hey, you know, you can say what you're really committed to. And it wasn't like in a judgment way. You can say what you're really committed to. But if you really look at your credit card statements, your bank account, you're going to see where is your money going? Really, really where it's going, right? 
And again, it wasn't a judgment. It wasn't, but it was an opportunity. It was, it was presented as an opportunity. Like, what if, what would be possible in the world, in your life, et cetera? You know, if you put more of your money where your highest ideals were and you put it first. So that was the context, you know, that Lynn really opened up my thinking. And then Lynn left the Hunger Project and one of her essentially protégés, I mean, the woman named Peck Thatcher, who took over for Lynn as the head of strategic funding for the Hunger Project was the one who really triggered this story that Marianne wants me to tell. Okay. And so the reason I want you to tell the story, because it fundamentally shifted how you see yourself from scrappy kid from Brooklyn to like philanthropist. And I think there's so many of us, like, I feel like, I mean, we talk about this all the time. Oh, everyone's a philanthropist. And yet we don't really know how to attach to that. You know what I mean? You want to believe like everyone is, of course, we're all giving and whatever. And also, like, what does that really look like? And how can you show somebody that they are truly a philanthropist and that giving feels good, you know, and like giving is a gift. So let's roll into this. Yeah. So what happened was, so when, you know, Spec took over and like I said, I was active, you know, and again, even at that point, I had written very small checks to the Hunger Project and the Hunger Project had something they called the global investor because their whole approach to fundraising was that it wasn't, yeah. you know, it wasn't quote unquote charity. They didn't use that language that we were investing in the future end of hunger. We were investing, we were partnering with, you know, the folks on the ground in various countries in Africa and India and things like that. And so it was looked at as an investment in the end of hunger. So the global investor was somebody who invested, contributed, right? $25,000 or more, all right? And, you know, for me, that wasn't, it wasn't close to my, on my radar. I mean, 25,000, I wasn't even close to 2,500, right? Right. I was probably writing checks for a couple hundred bucks, whatever, at that point, maybe. I don't remember. And at some point, you know, pretty early on, I mean, I, again, like Lynn was only around still at the Hunger Project for about six months when I was involved. So this had to be within a year of me getting involved with the Hunger Project. You know, Peg said to me, so you're going to be a global investor, right? And I was like, what? Like, I looked behind me, like, is she talking about something <laughs> behind me? Like, uh, you know, she's not talking to me. I mean, $25,000? Are you kidding me? Like, that's not even in my, in my realm. And this is the important part. It wasn't in my realm, not only from a logical point of view, like, I don't have that money sitting around, I don't know, but it was an identity conversation. Like, I'm not the person that can give $25,000. It's like, that's not who, that's not me. I'm this little middle class kid from Brooklyn who's been working hard and sure, I'm starting to make it, but, you know, but that, that was an amount that was just so beyond my view of myself, you know, like that, but the thing about it was that Peg did it in a way, and, and again, it, you know, it was the same way Lynn, Lynn did it, where she wasn't just trying to get money out of me, right? She truly saw me as that person. She saw me in a way that I could not yet see myself, right? And some of us in various contexts in our lives have been blessed to be in a position, you know, whether it's related to money, unrelated to anything else, you know, whether it's related to confidence or becoming a speaker or a successful business person or good in your career, whatever it is, where people have seen more in us than we've been able to see, you know, in ourselves, right? And it's always, you know, anybody who has one of those stories is so appreciative to that person, you know, and it's a blessing. And that, and Peg really saw that. She was like, you're a leader. You're, you know, I mean, the way you show up here, the way, you know, whatever. I mean, like, why wouldn't you be a, you know, a global investor in the Hunger Project? And it was only months later that I wrote my first $25,000 check, you know, to the Hunger Project. And you got to understand something. At this point, I'm not making hundreds of thousands of millions of dollars. You know, I was, uh, I don't know. I mean, at that point, maybe I was netting a hundred something, you know, and I was living in New York City. You're right. You know, paying rent. Like, you know, I didn't have, like, that wasn't, that was not money that was available. That was, I needed to look at, in order to do that, I needed to do what Lynn challenged us to do, which is, 
What happens if I put more of my money, you know, where my asset deals are and put it in first and then design my life around that? And that's what I ended up doing. And it's such a radical shift of like, you know, we think of charity as, okay, we're going to pay for everything. And then here's what's left over, right? Like, what's the easy thing? What's the thing that I don't want to say it doesn't hurt, but like, it's not going to upset anything, right? Like, okay, whatever I have off the top. And then this, the concept is like, no, you put your ideals first and you invest in the world that you seek. And then everything else comes from there, which is completely shift from the, I would say the cultural norm. No question about it. And it's a powerful thing because as a fundraiser, like I, I don't, I'm not a fundraiser, right? So I don't, it's not what I do, but I've obviously been solicited by plenty of folks, right? Who look at me to write checks for various things. And it's a very different concept, you know, when people ask me for money because, you know, somebody even take other you know, hunger charities, you know, somebody's starving and, you know, they show me a picture of somebody starving in, you know, in Ethiopia or something, right? You know, it's, you know, for me, the power was that they were, you know, what Lynn and Peg were doing were calling people forth into their own greatness, right? And to live more of their life where their commitments were, right? And there's a huge benefit to that. I mean, not, not that that's, you know, not that that is the primary thing, but for me, it changed my life entirely. I mean, first of all, I did make this commitment. I said, I'm going to put it in my, you know, my budget first. I looked at what I would need to change and cut down on other expenses and whatever. And by the way, it turned out I never had to do that. Why? Because more abundance flew. flew you exactly. Know, right. You let it flow out and it, and it floated back in. Right, and, back in uh-huh. and one of the thing, key things I've learned you know, later, it's not, it can't be a quid pro quo. It can't be like, oh, I'll do that. And I'll be, you know, if it's really from a place of true open giving, you know, it, it does come back to you and it, and it continued to. And, you know, year after year, I wrote, you know, checks of 25,000 or more for many years when I was very actively involved. And it changed my life. I mean, it ended up, so as a global investor, you know, you also get to go on trips. So I went, I went to Ghana in 1999 and went to villages, right? And met uh, with the partners there, right? And I get even choked up to this day, you know, it was 1999. You can see it's still emotional to me. You know, little kids taking my hands and taking me to their homes, which were, you know, huts with no running water where they're sleeping on the ground and show me where they sleep and where they pray and where they eat. And and this was not, again, you know, these were situations where people would train to make pottery that could be sold on the open market to plant pineapples to, you know, do things that would end their own hunger as an empowerment model. And because I was able to make a commitment at that level, I got to have those experiences. And I remember my first trip in Ghana, you know, I, I redefined myself as a world citizen which totally changed my whole outlook on life, right? I'm part of the human community. I'm connected to everybody in the world. That has caused me to go on to a lot of things I do, whether even in business, you know, I'm active in an entrepreneurs organization. That's a global organization. I connect to people around the world and my personal growth, my financial success, my connectivity to human beings, my satisfaction in life have all been exponentially higher because I was called forth by, you know, Lynn and Peck. Right. And so when you look at, I talk about it all the time, fundraising isn't a burden and it's a gift. It attaches people to their power and their passion. So that they're, you know, like their power and their purpose. So their power is like the assets they have and what they have to give and their purpose is the legacy they want to leave. And that is amazing. And then calling somebody into that higher because we sweat the major gifts like, oh, like, but it's like, but the way they did it was, you know, was not calling you out, right? Nope. But calling you into the greatness, calling you forward. And it's just so simple and so brilliant. And I think when you told me the story, I was like, 
This is why fundraising is a gift because you gave that gift. And not only did you give it and like, you thought you were going to have to scrimp a little, you know, like you did it in faith, right? And trust. But then also that what flowed into you was a hundred million times more than what flowed out. Yeah. I mean, even just like that life change, like it allowed you to reshape your identity and then keep reshaping it with those experiences as and like be connected as a as a global citizen in a way that would have never happened if you were going to be writing like thousand dollar checks. Right. You know, here. Yes. Yeah. Here's a little bit. I did my part. No way. And, and you know, it totally re shape my relationship to money, right? And that's, I'm convinced, not just when you change your relationship to money, right? It doesn't only affect the giving part of it, right? It affects the ability to earn it, it, Mm -hmm. receive it. And, you know, what's powerful for me, because I, you know, I've continued to do a lot of work around money because I think it's super important over the years. And one of the things I found, and even Lynn used to talk about this back in the day, she still does, you know, and she's raised hundreds of millions, billions of dollars. Like it's ridiculous how much money Lynn's, Lynn's raised over the years, right? And one of the things I remember her saying early on that hit me really strongly was that one of the things she had to learn as a fundraiser that made all the difference with very wealthy people, because she used to go and sit down in front of people who had millions, right. hundreds, tens right. of hundreds of millions, billions of dollars, right? And then, you know, they wouldn't write a check for hundreds of thousands or even 25,000 like I did, right? And she used to get upset with them, right? It was the early days. I'm going back now, right? 30 years. It was the early days. And when Lynn realized that no matter how much money people don't have or have, people's relationship to money is not necessarily, especially in this society, you know, healthy, right? In other words, there's still issues. They could have billions of dollars and still be in scarcity. They could and yep. feel like it's not enough. They could be afraid of somebody taking away from them, which by the way, because a lot of people are coming at them, right? Trying to, everybody's Take, looking for- Right, you know, everybody's- for Yeah, it. no, yeah. One, one of my mentors grew up really poor. And then after amassing money, he kept making money and losing it. Then he realized it's because his mom taught him that rich people were selfish, right? And then it took him a little bit but also very protective because yeah, people coming at you, right? right? People coming at you. And, you know, and so you tend to be very protect and you like, oh, is this a true relationship or somebody? I had a friend who won the lottery and people came out after, is this a true relationship or people asking me for my money? And because of that, they tend to close off, which is understandable. It's totally I, yeah, understandable. Yeah. You know, so, so you know, I remember when Lynn said that what shifted for her is when she was able to have compassion for the rich. Mm-hmm. Right. Because, you know, she realized that just because they had all this money didn't mean that they're that they didn't have issues with their relationship to money. There wasn't fear. There wasn't scarcity, all this stuff. So she, you know, she was able to have compassion for the rich and then call them forth from a much purer, much more grounded, much more generous and giving and, and understanding and compassionate place to put more of their money where the highest ideals were as opposed to judging them. Right. So, you know, no matter where you're at, this opportunity to, you know, to shift your relationship to money. Yeah. And not only, listen, just even on math, it's, it's had me be way more successful than I ever would financially, but then beyond that, right. The relationships that I've built, the things I've been able to impact just my own personal internal view of myself. Right. You know, and how much impact I can have and who I am and being comfortable with who I am and confidence. Like a, a lot of that has stemmed from this initial thing with Peg based upon Lynn's teachings, seeing me as more I could, than I could see myself. Yeah. That, that's the key there. She saw you bigger than you could see yourself. And really that's the work that I do. Right. Then I work with people. Like I had conversations with people today. Like I want, 
up. Like I can see that version of you, that higher version, you know, that, that next evolution. And she could see that in you. And also one of the things that you said is like, you showed up as a leader there. I think there is something about you and the way you present that she was like, cause the way you come in your leader and da, 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 like she was tapping into something that she saw. And so what I want to get is like, so for all of us who are listening, like what wisdom would you have to like the fundraisers of the world here who are like, Oh, there, there's a, you go ahead and say that. I'm going to say something else. You a- answer that for me. Sure. Um, so for me, first of all, and you know, you got to take everything, you know, and let me say where I come from. I believe the energy that you bring to any conversation is crucial, right? So if you as a fundraiser, and this is, I talk to business people about this, whether, you know, if they're presenting prospect, right. And they want the business. I talk about them in negotiating book. It's all the same, whether the same thing, fundraising. If you enter that conversation as a fundraiser from a place of desperation or scarcity or judgment or, you know, that who are you to ask for the money or, you know, assuming that they're going to be resistant, that's the energy that's going to show up, right? And if you come from it from the place, and this is why Lynn and Peg were such a great example of this, right? If you instead come from a place where you're calling forth people into their own greatness, you're calling forth people, you know, you're listening and and delving in with people to where are they passionate? What are they committed to? What difference do they want to make? You know, and then tapping into that and, and giving them an opportunity to do more of that, to find themselves in it, to make a bigger impact and be compassionate to, you know, wherever they're at. You know, if you come in with that energy, I think it's going to make, you know, the me and made the biggest difference. And, and again, I see it the same difference making itself in terms of being able to close clients in business. Right. It's it's any, any, any kind of deal, you know, energy precedes outcomes, which is like, and there is an underlying. And so if you're coming in with fear and scarcity, what you put out is exactly what you get back. And that's why you and I, we work hard. We cultivate this. This is something that we work on because I'm intentional about what I put out because I know that's what I'm going to get back. And, and I love, you know, and that's what I would say too, is, you know, one of the things I teach people is releasing the outcome, right? Like there, you can hold space for that's something I really would love to have happen and I'm okay no matter what. And allowing like whatever you decide is totally okay and meaning that yep. you know, because the more often, the more power you give people to make a choice, the more likely they're going to choose what you want. But the more you push, the more they're going to get, they're going to, they're going to shut down. And like, which I think, you know, is evidenced by that. But I want to go back to something you said, because I think this is a big thing is, you know, having empathy for wealthy people and coming from a place of kindness and empathy. And sometimes that's hard to access because, you know, you like, you have so much. And what I tell people is you can't raise what you resent, right? Like if you resent money and if you resent needing money and you resent people who have money, it's going to be harder, not going to say like, but it may be harder to connect to it. And for fundraisers, and this is what I work with people on, it's like reshaping your relationship to money so that you can receive it. And that book was The Soul of Money that Lynn wrote, that Lynn Twist wrote was the one of the biggest things that like, whoa, showed me there's a whole new way to look at this. And my life is better for it too. You know, like, it's just like how I see money is so much different because of some of the work, this book and other books and just learning from people because underlying all of this is that abundance is that the universe is infinite and powerful. There's enough for everyone. There's more than enough for everyone. Yes. And, and we don't have to worry like, oh, I have to get my pie because there's only so much. It's like, no, infinite is infinite. Powerful is powerful. There is money everywhere. 
And it's just a matter of opening up and that can, if you're deep in resentment, that can feel hard to do, you know? So I'm just encouraging people like this may be a foreign concept. It, it takes a little time to unwind because so much of what we learn about money in our culture is uh-huh. you better hold on to yours. Cause it's going to go, you know, and you're only going to get so much and you got to hold on to it and you got to watch every penny. And then this book is like, let it flow. Cause it's all going to flow. Like, back in. And I, I'm working with this on my spouse right now. I'm like, let it flow. He's like, what? <laughs> so, you know, like, but it is, it's like whole different way of looking at it. And what I say to people is, you know, making, which is exactly what you did, Corey, you made a decision from the vision instead of your current circumstance, right? So making decisions based on the vision that you hold instead of your current circumstance. And that's, you know, what I call people into doing is like, oh, I don't know if I can afford it. Let's make a decision from that higher person that you want to be instead of your current circumstance. Because if you only make decisions from there, what we're not going to be able to really move needles at all around here. That's so true, Marianne. It's like, it's right on the mark. And and that's why I think, you know, for fundraisers, there's an opportunity. And I know this could be hard, especially if you're meeting with very people you perceive as super successful, very wealthy. Yes. Like they can be very more money than you do, more success mm-hmm. than you do, all that kind of stuff, whatever is, you know, is this, you have an opportunity to be a contribution to them just because they have a lot of money, just because they have multiple businesses, 12 hours or whatever it is. Right. And they travel the world doesn't mean that they have everything together. In fact, nobody does. And, and a lot of them have major you know, issues or whatever. So if you believe that, you know, if you believe that why, you know, why should you be in the room with them and you're barely scratching for money, you're not going to be that successful. If you really believe, and, I, and it's true, you have a way, if you have this understanding about money and you have a passion and commitment for whatever you're raising money for, and you believe that you can go in there as you, as I believe you can and give them an opportunity they don't yet see, right? Whether that's, you know, connect them to a cause and have them be more fully involved with something that they're passionate about and the benefit they'll get out of that, you know, or having a different relationship to money, whatever it is, there's something you can be a contribution to them. And I think if you go in with that attitude and listen, again, I relate to other business, I don't do fundraising, but it's very parallel, right? I come from a service mentality, Right. When I get on a call with somebody as a prospect for my business, one, I'm not attached. Sure, do I have a preference? If they're good people, I'd like to work with them. Absolutely, right? I'm not going to be laissez-faire about it. I'm not going to be, you know, I have a preference. But ultimately, I'm detached. I trust the people who are meant to work with me are going to come to me. And by the way, we close. I think the last I looked, it was 86% of qualified prospects. Okay. All right. Wow. That's a ridiculous, that's a ridiculous <laughs> close rate. Right. Wow. But I hesitate. But the reason I say that, the only reason I give that stat is not to impress anybody, but because if you didn't understand this, you would think there's a total disconnect in the way I approach it to that success because I'm totally unattached. I don't push anybody. Right. right? You know, I serve them on the call. They get value whether they, even if they don't hire me. Right. You know, if they say they're looking at alternatives, I tell them they should. Right. You know, if they think there's somebody less expensive than me that they can do, you know, I tell them if you think they can do as good yeah. of a job, you should go hire them. Like, and I really mean it. I do, you know, and the point is I come from a place of contribution and I believe that I can contribute to them. And if they're meant to work with me, they will. And if you can approach fundraising that way, where you go in to contribute to these people, no matter how much money they have, right. And show them something that they're not able to see, which is what happened with me. Then I think the opportunities are endless. Yeah, I think so too. And it's going back to, you know, it's not so much as making Making a case for the cause as helping someone have, you know, step into a bigger vision of themselves and then showing them, you know, here's how you can manifest that vision, right? Like, here's how you can, how you can step into that vision and make it real. 
and in our culture as well, we're taught, you know, you got to pitch it, you got to sell it. And we have a very different style, which is, you know, being of service. And, and that's what I teach people in fundraising. You don't have to pitch anything. In fact, you know, all you have to do is listen. Right. And, and, but it's such a different, uh, I think it's just a different approach than we've been typically taught was like, you know, get in there, close, close. And then that could work on the short term. That may work once. <laughs> Right. Like that, that may work one time, but then after that, they're going to, they're going to put up a lot of resistance. And, you know, you said, cause one of the things that Lynn talks about in the book is, you know, like in Ethiopia, like in the eighties, you know, there's millions and billions of dollars going in there and it really was, didn't create sustainability right. and that money doesn't solve problems. People solve problems. Money is a tool. And that we're all partners in philanthropy. Like one of the things she talks about that I think is so profound is we are all partners in our joint liberation. Like we all sit around the table and it takes all of us to solve it, right? Not just like the people living in who are living with decisions. Because a lot of times the money is like, okay, we'll give them a bunch of money and it'll go away. And then with no regard for like who's getting the money and what decisions are being made. And so like, and so flattening that and just saying like, from donor to client to whoever, we're all working together, you know, and which is a different approach too. And I just thought that that was so amazing because so many times we've like, okay, the donor has the money, they have the power, we have to like, you know, court them. And in this model, it's no, no, you, you we're all, you have one tool of many tools in this toolbox that are going to help. And because money doesn't solve problems, people solve problems that this is one tool that we're going to use which lessens the mystique a little bit, you know, because yes. like we often defer to the people with money because they have the power and, and that comes from scarcity because we're afraid if we say the truth and they're not going to give and, uh, da, da, and like, so in fundraising, I feel like sometimes we tend to not talk with our donors about the hard things, you know, about, I think in some nonprofits, and I know you'll relate to this, like, we're afraid, like, how can you talk about homelessness and not talk about racism? And like, but we're afraid to have those conversations because we're afraid we're going to alienate someone or, and then, so we tend to almost perpetuate the very problems where we want to solve because of the deference to the money. And just, Marianne, just to bring it back to that original story, there's a great example exactly of what you're talking about because it's so on the mark. So, you know, the Hunger Project would always say that the reason why we are giving money in the U.S. or in the West, right, is because that's what we have to give. Right. Right. And it's not a missionary model. Right. There's a million examples. And, and listen, I don't want to I know right. you have all kinds of listeners, wherever I'm not in judgment. But listen, there are plenty of examples where organizations, well-meaning, well-meaning organizations have thrown a huge amount of money, built some building, did some something, whatever. And then it's not sustainable. You see that building gone. 15 yep. years ago and it's decaying and there's no. And one of the things that I loved about the Hunger Project then and I and there are other I mean, I'm using that because that's the example of the story. But any other cause that I support for me, has to come from a empowerment model, a local ownership model, that kind of stuff, because it's not sustainable otherwise. So, you know, I'll give you an example. So we were like, okay, so my 25 grand, everybody else's money. Okay. That's what we have to give. But we were, yeah, we were one component, one part of it. In Ghana, for example, there were local Ghanaian folks on the ground, right? You know, people from Ghana, local folks, who are doing the work. There was a country director in Ghana. There was an Africa director that oversaw all the, 
local folks who knew the landscape, who were going to be there. And then what they did was they enrolled in empowered people. So one specific example, there's a village in Ghana called Taito Aramabu. And in Taito Aramabu, what they did was they trained women how to grow pineapples because pineapples were a cash crop that were very lucrative in the market and generally more often work with women because they were more reliable in terms of doing the work. And it's been shown in paying back microloans if you look at study it or whatever. Okay. So, and men were busy working what they called the cash crops, you know, making minimal money. Any case, bottom line is, this is just an example. We go over there to, right, to Ghana. One day we go to Taroma Adamabu to meet our family, to meet our partners. Okay. This is not us as the big money people, and listen, no matter how many times they called it family partner, whatever, I'll, I'll admit there was always something in the back of my mind was like, oh yeah, we have a lot to teach these people. And you know what I left Ghana with? I left Ghana with, oh my God, yeah, we have some things we can teach them. And we have so much, oh my God, we have so much we can learn. Mm-hmm. I mean, the sense of community, the connectedness to land, the working together, the welcoming, you know, we would come into these villages, right? And again, we're talking about villages with you know, where the women would have to walk down to the river to get water, right? Where, you know, maybe they would get a well and that would be, and and they would have a ceremony and they would greet us and they would welcome us into the community and they'd be dancing and still it backs me, right? You know, the connectedness to the people that are on the ground. And like I said, little kids showing me where they live. And then when you find out that teaching women how to grow pineapples and then connecting them to people to the ability to sell those, not only did it help those families to sell the pineapples, but what it also did was it led to the community having more money, which had them be able to build a school, which they didn't have before in the community, so that the kids can go to school. And then when you find out that when the kids go to school, especially girls, that girls get married later and they have fewer kids, right? Because traditionally they would get married at 13, 14, 15 and start having kids mm-hmm. and have eight, 10 kids, right? So now education rates go up, right? Marriage ages go up, birth rates go down, right? All of this stuff creates a sustainability chain of right of ability. So it's not just planting pineapples, you know, it creates this whole thing. And all of the different people, and most importantly, the folks in that village, right, who are planting the pineapples and going to school and the girls that, right, that's the impact. And just the money we provided was just a little piece of that. But I'll tell you, the ego boost of being the money guy is so minuscule compared to the benefits that I got, right? When I would spend time, and I also went to Uganda and I went to India and I did a number of these trips, right? And you would see the impact, right? You would see it. And when you heard these statistics about, you know, about girls and education and birth rates and and the success and the ability that they had to go on, I mean, the level of satisfaction out of that, the level of, you know, sense of impact and difference that, you know, that my little check got to make is, you know, way beyond, you know, whatever, if I named some, you know, if I, right, if I got right. named some program at some charitable event, right? You know, and again, I'm not putting that down. I'm not making a judgment. It's just for me, what they gave me, what the folks who were the fundraisers gave me the gift of was for me to get, get more connected to my passions, to see the impact I made, to have me change as a human being. I mean, you see how emotional I get when I think back to, to 1999, 2000, right? And, and that's followed through in other things that I'm involved in for, you know, since then for the last 20 something years. Right. Well, that's amazing. And I just want this to be such an inspiration for others to know, like a gift changes lives and it's, you know, attaching you to so much more in that vision of yourself. And thank you so much for sharing this with me. This is exactly what I wanted <laughs> when we were in the room and you told us, I'm like, you're telling that on my podcast. So yay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I, I didn't feel like I had much of a choice, but I was, but I'm joking because I, I, 
I you're like you're coming on my podcast. I'm like absolutely. Yes, um, you are. No, I mean, listen. I really appreciate you having me on. If anybody was inspired to give more, or you know, in terms of the fundraising folks, to be able to have an approach you know, that st- will stand in their power and, and yeah. ask for and really tap into somebody and and you know, instead of sweating it out, looking at it as you know an opportunity to just ask people to step into their greatness. And that's a message that's always good to hear from all of us. So thank you so much. You're welcome, Marianne. All right. And this is another episode of the Influential Nonprofit. If you want to learn more about influence, growing your influence so you can raise more money, you can go to theinfluentialnonprofit.com. I have all kinds of goodies there you can download, including my really cool ebook called Stop Sitting Back and Start Making Change. And I go into a lot of the concepts that Corey and I talked about here around your relationship with money and different things like that. And so you can find that all there. And I will see you next time on the Influential Nonprofit. Thanks for listening to the Influential Nonprofit with your host, Marianne Dirsch. If you enjoyed the show, please tell your friends and colleagues about the podcast. Also, check out the influentialnonprofit.com for more resources on growing your influence so you can raise more and do more.